Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their amazing stories of experience, strength, and hope. To mark the 75th interview in my AA Recovery Interviews podcast series, I'm pleased to welcome Jeff B., a man who rose to the very top of his profession, only to find alcoholism ready and waiting to take him down. For years, his extraordinary achievements on the field thrilled millions of fans. Off the field, his growing consumption of alcohol set the stage for the disease to take over when a painful and career-ending injury forced him to retire years before he was ready. As Jeff experienced relentless daily pain, the heartbreaking loss of his beloved profession, and the boredom of retirement, he sought relief through the bottle. Instead of relief, Heavy drinking only numbed the pain, while it fractured his marriage, upset his children, and self-isolated him from the people in his life who cared the most. His first attempt at treatment was to appease his wife and children, but the absence of an honest desire to stay sober took him out shortly thereafter. Subsequent treatment programs and therapy did little to effect a long-term solution, but they did open Jeff's eyes to Alcoholics Anonymous. The following years found him in and out of AA, collecting nine desired chips, along with lots of self-recrimination, shame, and disappointment in the process. But people in the program never gave up on him, and 12th stepped him time and time again. When he finally picked up his last desire chip nearly five years ago, Jeff had been totally beaten by the disease, and he was ready to do the hard but necessary work to stay sober. Ironically, his spiritual awakening came with the realization that might seem counterintuitive to a professional athlete. Jeff had to surrender to win. That surrender was the ticket to lasting and contented sobriety for Jeff, sustained by his constant involvement in AA. Choosing to remain in the middle of the program, he attends regular meetings, works the steps, reads the big book, calls his sponsor, and carries the message to other alcoholics. His local and national renown allows him a wide sphere in which to help others, while his humble nature, quiet demeanor, and total confidence in the program have allowed him to touch many lives. I'm honored to have Jeff as my 75th interview. His story embodies many of the same experiences of other AA members I've interviewed. His extraordinary career notwithstanding, his place as an active member of AA is as vital and significant as every other member of the fellowship. His love for and accountability to the program is both admirable and attractive. So, relax and enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my good friend and AA brother, Jeff B. I'm Jeff Alcoholic. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I really appreciate the time that you're taking today to do this. My pleasure. It's a, it's a joy and uh, an honor to do this for you, Howard. Well, good. I appreciate that. You and I have known each other for quite a while, and um, I'm trying to think of how long ago it was I met you, but you're coming up on how many years have you got now? I have about four and a half years. 10, and 17, half. 17 was my sobriety date. Yeah, that's amazing. But you and I have known each other since 2010. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> so that tells you about it. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think happened? We just fell out of touch or? No. You did some more experimentation out there. I did. I went and did some experimentation to see if, if this thing was real and that I could beat this on my own. Lots of people have tried that, haven't they? Yeah, the next question that you should ask me is, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> so, how'd that work out for you, Jeff? <laughs> it, it did not work out for me very good. So, in October of 2017, you came back. Mm -hmm. I remember you coming into that meeting, but I also remember a lot of other meetings prior to that that you had come right. into. And there were a couple times when you came back that you looked really rough. And uh, you would sit in the back of the room. It's almost like you didn't want anybody to come near you. And I understand that because guys who slip and come back do that all the time. Right. What was going on at the beginning of that period of time? 2012? 10, really. 2010, okay. What was going on in your life that made you go to AA in the first place? You know, actually, it's a bunch of different things. Yeah. Um, at the time, I had retired from baseball in 2006. Mm -hmm. I was not doing real well at home in my, my marriage. But part of that was a lot my fault. Mm -hmm. And I had things going on there. I, I really, Howard, feel like I had no purpose in my life. And... I had nothing to do. So, you know, I've always drank, but I would drink after games, wake up in the morning, do my day, never went to the baseball field, drinking never at all. It's just yeah. what I did. And then I got home and I had really nothing to do. So, you know, generally I'd wait till after the kids came back from school, you know, eat, have a drink with dinner, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. And then it started to get worse, my drinking the earlier and earlier and earlier. And then my infidelity that I had in my marriage came to a head and I left the house and then, you know, kind of like the saying, the all bets were off after that. I get it. And, you know, I started drinking very early in the morning. And so what happened was my kids came to me and said, dad, I'd like you to go to rehab. Hmm. And I said, Oh, okay. And so I said, all right, I'll go to rehab. And first, before I went there, I, I went to a meeting with a bunch of gentlemen at, on a Monday morning meeting for breakfast, kind of started in with those guys and all that. Uh -huh. But Howard, at the time, I, I really didn't think that I'd ever stop drinking. Like, okay, I'll, I'll stop. I'll do this because my kids asked me to do it. Went to a couple of meetings there and then went to my first rehab with no intentions of ever stopping. I just kind of did it for them at the time. Yeah, and that's a common refrain getting sober for other people, knowing that you don't really want to, but you'll do it for them. And until right. the desire to start again, then you'll do what they want you to do, but then you'll go back to what you were doing. Exactly right. I was curious about, you said you'd always drank. Did you grow up in a family where alcoholism was, was prevalent, uh, either in your, your folks or extended family? No, and I, I had a very small family. Uh -huh. My mother's side, they drank. You know, but I didn't really see enough to say, oh, I grew up in an alcoholic family. Mm -hmm. My dad barely drank. Uh, my mom would have her wine and stuff, but I never noticed it as anything more than just regular stuff. Um, you know, my grandfather, who was blind for like 20 years before he passed away, I remember him having a bottle of Seagram's next to him on the cherry side. He couldn't see. And he would try and watch a Red Sox game and he couldn't see it, but he could hear it. But I never, there was never something at all. It's even to this day, I don't consider them a, an alcoholic family. They just drank. Yeah. 
I get that. It's so typical that you and I go to meetings where so many people come from families yes. where alcohol was, was big. My Neither one of my folks drank, but there was mental health issues in the family, like clinical depression. Both sides of the family just shot through with it. All right. But my dad was a rager, and, and there, there were other things that went on that had no relationship to alcohol whatsoever. I feel like it's the same way with me too, Howard. I don't, I don't look back at my, my childhood or anything like that thinking, Oh, it's part of my family, and and this is just I'm part I'm a product of that. Uh, yeah. I don't feel like that. Maybe it was. Maybe I don't know. Um, but I don't feel like that. Yeah. So you grew up in Boston. I was born in Boston, and then we moved to Connecticut when I was two. Uh, so I pretty much grew up in Connecticut my whole life. Still a Boston Red Sox fan growing up, I'll bet. Oh yeah. Still, even to this day, I'm still a Red Sox fan. I just don't, I'm not a fan when they play against us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah, it's a it's a different environment up there when you're a Red Sox fan. It's it's everyday life. It's it's really it's the Red Sox, all the sports teams there. I mean, you you were born into a Boston sports deal. Yeah, and they are my my matter of fact, my aunt when she goes to our Astros games with me, she wears her Red Sox stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take it out of her. Yeah, you take the fan out of the yeah. uniform, but you can't take the uniform out of the fan. Yeah, exactly that's probably right. the, that's probably the wrong way. I know, I get it though. So, you, were you a, a pretty good kid when you were growing up? I mean, were you a good student? Uh, I was. Was there anything that was going on that that might have predicted you would become an alcoholic later on in life? No, it, and you know, and Howard, when we do our you know our four step and stuff like that, we go through everything that we've been through, and. Uh-huh. I was a good kid. I had great parents. They got divorced when I was 12. I was happy they got divorced. Mm. I didn't get in trouble when I was in school. I was always playing sports. You know, I lived in kind of the woods where I lived in Connecticut. And my dad would have me home by 12 o'clock every night. Um, and I'd be like, Dad, you know, nothing gets going until after 12. He goes, exactly. <laughs> but I was never, you know, I did probably a little bit of everything. I drank too much once or twice. And my parents caught me and I got grounded at the mow the lawn and stuff like that. But all in all, I, I had a great childhood. Huh. Even though your folks were divorced when you were 12, what was that like? You said you, you were glad they did. Yeah, because I lived in a small house. So, you know, every argument there is, I heard everything. Uh, and when they decided to get divorced, the good news is my mom moved about five miles away, uh-huh. which in Connecticut to you and I is just the other block around here. Yeah. Um, so they were at all my games. I'm not so sure they sat next to each other, but they, they spoke and they were cordial and um, I mean, as divorces go, it, it was fine, as far as I'm concerned. A lot of kids at that age get conflicted when their parents get divorced. Yes. Things start to happen in their lives, either with their grades or with behavior. Did any of that kind of stuff occur with you? No. Um, nothing changed like that. And, and mm. what you're talking about, I understand, because you know, I had to go through that with my kids when I got divorced. But for me, I, I, was, I was fine. I had nothing but support. Mm. You know, my parents had to drive me. I mean, I lived, I went to school 30 miles away. So my, my parents would have to drive me, pick me up until I had a car. Both of them went to every game I, and I, I didn't fluctuate in school. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately for me, I, I really have no, no horror stories about my childhood. And I'm very lucky and my relationship with my parents have always been great. Yeah, that's important. You were involved in baseball for like from the time you could walk. Yeah. Would you say that that involvement keeping on that one track for so many years contributed to your not engaging in some of the things that other kids your age were engaging in 100 um, percent. 
I, I, I totally believe that it kept me out of trouble. Although, you know, I look at today's world <laughs> and the world that I grew up in, it's a little bit different of trouble you could get in back then. But yeah. I think sports in general, I think the stats are between 13 and 15 is the most dangerous time for kids because they get out of school from three to five is a very dangerous time. And I always had sports. So I always had somewhere to go, had responsibilities to my team. And mm -hmm. because of my father instilling the work ethic in sports where I, I was not able to quit anything I started. Mm -hmm. If I said I was going to do something, I had to do it. And I'll, we'll go back to that. Don't ever quit at anything. We'll go back to that later on in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. So, yeah, that was uh, that was part of it. I think that really did keep me out of trouble. The the guys that you hung with or or, the, or your crowd obviously were people involved in the sports that you were involved in. Uh, do you recall how you were thought of and treated uh, at your schools as you were growing up, becoming a better and better player? Were were you envied or were you really well liked and and uh, were you free and flexible within the different crowds in the school? Yeah, I was. To be honest, when I, when I got to high school, I had played soccer my my whole life with baseball. Huh. We didn't have we didn't have football until ninth grade. Yeah, uh, we went to Sunday school, and then after Sunday school, we'd play soccer. So I got pretty good at soccer. So I got to being a freshman in high school, and they're like, "Are you not going to play football?" I said, "No, I play soccer." Hmm. So. It wasn't quite as bad as you would say that nowadays in Texas, but right. back in, in Connecticut, I just did my thing playing soccer. And I was, we'd have the football team come watch us play. That's, I mean, so I was, uh, my, myself and the group I was with were, we were all part of that group and we kind of had some flexibility in between all those people. So yeah. it worked out very nicely. Do you recall any people from, from high school or even closer people on your teams uh, that you noticed having problems and issues with alcohol, and and how did the how did the coaches and the uh, administration deal with that at your school? Howard, I, I mean, call me a blind, you know, blind eye, rose-colored glasses, whatever you want to call. I, I never saw anything like that. I mean, I had some guys that would you know smoke weed every once in a while, which was the worst thing you could do. You know, and back then, if your parents went, if somebody's parents went away, you know, they'd have three bottles of something underneath their sink which was all disgusting, but it was never anything that I saw like, oh, that kid's got a problem. I never I never saw any of that. Yeah. I mean, back then, Howard, the idea of an alcoholic was the guy on the side of the road. Right. Which, as we all know, is not the truth. What was your understanding beyond just the guy on the side of the road? Did you think about that whenever there was booze around? No, never. Okay. I, I just, it was only like, you know, the parents would go away or somehow somebody found something but never it just you know back 40 years ago that wasn't talked about where i was from uh it was just something you know somebody might say oh he's an alky but that yeah. was never like a, a real thing yeah yeah well especially coming from boston too and that whole part of the country yeah. i think alcohol is a much more ubiquitous thing than it is mm -hmm. almost anywhere else unless you're talking about beer in texas but right uh so do you recall the first times that you were hanging out with the folks who were drinking going to parties whatever else oh yeah did you find yourself ever get drunk or were you pretty responsible with no i was i mean i had a i had a fight one day with jack daniels uh when i was a freshman in high school the last fight i ever had with him 
he, <laughs> I drank a whole bunch of Jack Daniels and my friend dropped me off at my house and I was throwing up all over the place and I literally was trying to ca- crawl into my house. Uh-huh. I, I got through the screen door and I looked up and my father was standing right there and I was like, uh, he never said one word to me. He got me in the bed and when I woke up, he was standing over me <laughs> looking at me <laughs> and, and, and then it was just, there was never a conversation of, oh, you know, we got to monitor this or we got to watch what you're doing. It was just a kid that got had too much to drink. Yeah. So you you were living with your dad at that time. I would I was this you know I would do the things that most kids do when their when their parents are separated. When uh-huh. I was in trouble, when I was in trouble, I'd go to my mom's house, and when, <laughs> and when I wasn't, I'd stop at my dad's house because he was closer to where I was coming home from. <laughs> so in that situation, your dad took care of it. But did he ever say anything to you, or were there any lectures that followed that, or no? He just kind of let it be. Kind of let it be. I mean, I just, I think in the world that we live in, us personally as alcoholics and through addiction, we're more sensitive to those type of things. And especially 40 years ago, there wasn't uh-huh. as much talk about this. Um, so it was just kind of like another kid that had too much to drink. I hope he learns from this. Yeah. Well, that's not a bad place to start and get through high school and you get to college. Did things change uh, with regard to your drinking once you got to college or were you similarly engaged in uh, sports to the effect that you didn't do anything else? No, I was like every single other person on our team. You know, any single, just like any kid in college that plays sports or anything, we would, we would do our thing. We would be the college experience. Um, we'd all drink a ton. I just happened to be able to drink more than most, mm-hmm. uh, which is a theme. But if I look at it, even as an alcoholic in recovery now, there was nothing that I did that I think was any different than what I think other kids do. Yeah. I was always able to drink more than other people, and that can be a real liability at times. Sure. Uh and it can also be one of those things that you think, well, you know, I don't get drunk till I have five drinks, you know, so I can't possibly be an alcoholic because I can cut it off at five drinks. Well, <laughs> you know, just because I can drink more than the next guy doesn't mean I stay s- sober through it. I mean, I'm getting drunker and drunker. Did you find that right. to be the case as well? Yeah, but I, like, yeah, like you said, man, I, could, I just made it. I was, I mean, I've had people say, man, I didn't even know you were drinking last night. But it's hard because when you when you're in that situation and when you're young, it's just it's just what you did. Like there's never a blinking light that goes on for at that particular time 40 years ago or for or 35 or 30 years ago where you said, oh, I might have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's how it was for me, too. I mean, I was doing all those things in college and once I got out and I never stopped for a minute to think that there was anything wrong with no. it because everybody because the people I was surrounding myself with were people who were doing the exact same thing. So <laughs> exactly. that was the yeah. normal that I lived in. And I, same way for you, too. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do. We hang around the people that do the same things we do. I always laugh at my funny thing with what I tell people is, you know, every time you go to a bar or something and you're drinking and you all of a sudden there's that one person over at the end of the bar you go look at that guy over there to kind of make yourself feel better about you uh-huh and the problem is when you become that guy yeah yeah <laughs> we were to get all of us together and we're just like no nah, man we're good everybody kind of covering everybody else too right that's right yeah Exactly. Unless there's one really sensitive person on the team who sees what's going on and maybe pulls a guy aside. That ever happened? That happened in the big leagues with uh, one of my closest, a very close friend of mine, Ken Caminiti, who passed away. Uh, yeah. That was my first intervention 
and I gave it and I didn't know it was really an intervention, but it was something that had to be done. So it was the same thing you're just saying, but that didn't happen to me until uh, 94. So you go through all those years being a relatively um, normal drinker, would you say? I would say not normal. I would say a big drinker, but never in my mind did I think that I was a problem drinker. Hmm. I just drank more than most. Mm-hmm. I was always up for, if you wanted to go out and have some beers or some drinks, I, you know, I, they knew I was going, so that's the way it was. Yeah, I get that. So, you know, one of the things that we strive for in, in Alcoholics Anonymous and in our respective programs is some kind of spiritual connection that presumes that we didn't have one previously because of our spiritual connection was the spirits, the alcohol itself. What was your spiritual life like before you came into Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, I, I think I'm no different than a lot. I'm Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went to Sunday school, did communion, do all, did all those, all those things that we do there. And I think if I look at it now, I, I was more of the spiritual God, if you get me out of this, I promise I won't. Always had, knew there was God, always believed in it, always tried to act like a Christian and a good person, mm-hmm. but never, never saw the gifts that were out there. Just kind of, I took for granted what my spiritual connection could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think a lot of times, you, until you really find that, Howard, I think you, you got to get punched in the face first. And even then you don't see it, mm-hmm. but this disease and AA, it'll get you motivated if you're going to do this in the right direction. Yeah, that's how it was for me. I mean, I was very much the foxhole prayer kind of guy Yeah, without ever really stopping to consider all of the things that I now know about my higher power that I had to learn by coming into the last house on the block, right? Right. It's the same same kind of thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. So and one of the themes that's been emerging from all these podcasts I've been doing is functional alcoholics. One of the podcasts I just did was with a woman who is a, a relatively successful actress. And, uh, you know, she had a very, very successful career going on until alcohol really ganged up on her later on. Was that kind of your trajectory as well? Did it build or was it kind of steady for a while and then you fell off a cliff? What did that look like from the time you got to the big leagues, let's say, until the intervention or whatever else was done for you? To be honest, I think when when I hurt my shoulder uh-huh. in 2001, yeah, I was in a lot of pain every day. And I think I became a little bit agitated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't sleep right. I, I couldn't perform the way my mind still knew that I should perform. Mm-hmm. Um, and then leading up to retiring, that's when kind of everything, the cliff, maybe it's not a cliff, but it's certainly a, a downward trajectory of where I started going until when I retired, then I started to descent at a higher level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get that. So when you were in your early years, because you hurt your shoulder after how many years in the big? 11. 10, 11, yeah. 10 or 11. So during that 10 or 11 years, you're playing a lot of ball. You're traveling all the time. You have access to pretty much anything that you want. Mm-hmm. How did you keep yourself in check during all that time? It was just the game of baseball. Uh, it's just the way it was. I, I would I would drink after games until it was time to go to bed, and I'd wake up, and whether I'd had too much to drink the night before or whatever, I still did not drink beforehand yeah. during any, at any time. And I just that was my job. And mm-hmm. but well, put, put it this way: most guys that I hung out with did the same thing, 
I just happen to probably drink more than others. Yeah. And I think, uh, Howard, if I have to be honest with you, I think there are some people that knew that I was going down that path that I was not privy to the information. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. What you're talking about right now sounds very familiar from the standpoint of people I've known over the years who became very, very successful in business. Y you know, they were able to be f a functional alcoholic for quite a period of time until it really took its toll. But when you were drinking after games, you were a lot like some of the people I've interviewed who were businessmen who were able to work all day long, make millions and millions of dollars and go home in the evening, and just get trashed and then do it again the next day. Right. Before you hurt your shoulder, do you feel like you were heading that way or w what was going on at that time? In my mind, no. I, I, in my mind, I was just, I was having a heck of a time. Uh -huh. um, I mean, as hard as baseball is and all the failure that you have to deal with. I mean, I was, I had a big year in 2000 mm -hmm. and then going into 2001, I found out I had a labrum tear in my shoulder. Mm. And I still had a good year that year. And then I had surgery. So things were, I mean, I was having the time of my life. You know, I was doing very, was very successful what I did. Mm -hmm. um, I had my first child on the way. Whether I was happy at home or not, I still was having my first child. And then once I had surgery and then the, the constant, constant trying to get better hmm. and seeing little results, I'm assuming, and I, I look back at it now, that's when it started to get worse. Hmm. Was it that your drinking ramped up around the pain? I think so. Yeah. But, you know, how we're sitting here today, I'm like, it's kind of like the calm before the storm. Like the alcoholism was always in me. This yeah. was just kind of accelerated it for me. I see. And it's also something that can happen quickly or it can happen gradually. Right. Uh, was it a quick or gradual for you? I mean, it depends on what you think is gradual. I mean, we have guys in our program that came in when they were 67 years old. Oh, yeah. Uh, that would be gradual. Uh, I think mine was, it wasn't overnight, but it was a period of three, four, five years where it really started to settle in. Matter of fact, when I was playing my last year in 2004, uh -huh. I, uh, I came into Cincinnati and I wasn't in the lineup. And I'm like, okay, off day. We had a day game the next day. I came in again, and I wasn't in the lineup again. And hmm. I went into my manager's office, and I said, are you freaking kidding me? And he goes, well, he goes, the stats and numbers show that you don't play real well during day games, and that might be for stuff that you're doing at night. Hmm. And I went berserk, and I started throwing stuff all over the place, and I was like, you can't win if I'm not playing. But I remember after that, I decided not to drink as much after that before day games, but never thinking that, oh, well, maybe I have a problem. It's just I was drinking too much the night before, and I need to calm that down. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back at that reaction that you had in your manager's office, as you think about that and the repercussions, what part of you was feeling angry because you were exposed versus just pissed off that you weren't going to play? Did you have that sense that, uh-oh, the jig is up? No, I was pissed. I think a little bit of both. I think, okay, I can live with the fact that he said that. That means I need to calm it down. Yeah. But then my ego was, you're not going to be able to win if I don't play. Yeah. And to be honest with you, both things worked out. I played real well the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. But it also kept me from drinking a lot. Putting a Band-Aid on a situation that was a big cut. That makes sense. Yeah. By not drinking as much the night beforehand.
Now, when I say not drinking as much, let's just use a number. Instead of 10 drinks, maybe I had eight. Eight. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully there wasn't a day game the next day. No, I would only do it on day games. I wouldn't drink 10. Did he ever pull you aside after that or go into any more detail with you about it? Or did it ever become an issue again? No, it did not because uh, I did huh. start to play better. So he was getting what he needed out of me. Uh, but it just, you know, it just wasn't something that I thought about back then. A lot of times people, they don't get called out until their performance suffers and then they make a comeback with the performance. And in a lot of professions, as long as you're coming back strong, let's leave well enough alone and let the guy do what he does well. And right. okay, so if he gets that way every now and then, it's the price that we pay for his performance, right? Exactly. I think it goes on both sides. Me too. You know what I mean? Like, I think what you're saying is 100%. He got the best out of me at that particular time that he could get and maybe happy that, you know, that that's what he got. And for me, it was validation of, all right, I'll just, uh, I'll just do what I said I'll do. I just won't drink as much and I'm, I'm okay. Uh, and as we look at it from now, it'd be like, I, I don't know if I would have done it any differently. Like I, I know my personality and I know the way the situation was, I didn't know enough about being an alcoholic to do anything about it at the time. Yeah, and of course, being in the program, we learn how to tamp down our egos sure. and become right-sized. Right-sized, yeah. And my ego would get me into more trouble than anything else. I'd get indignant if somebody said something about my drinking, like, what are you talking about? Right. I'm not drinking more. You're drinking more. You know, <laughs> yeah. come, come to me when you got a real problem at hand. <laughs> you know? Exactly right. Yeah. So when, when your shoulder was hurting, a lot of people turned to narcotics at that point. Did, mm -hmm. did you have any issues with meds around uh, around that shoulder injury? You know what, Howard? I, I have never had an issue with meds. I'm, I, I don't use drugs. Never have. Um, I'll tell you what, I, I would take, I'd have to take two pain pills, one when I got there, one before the game. If you had told me I, they would have given me something stronger, I would have taken it. Mm. But at no no time ever did it ever give me a feeling of like I I don't want to take pills. Like it, it doesn't do anything for me. And, and I've always been curious of people that take you know whether they're hydrocodone or or any kind of drug. I, I don't understand that feeling. Nor do I really want to find out. Yeah, I get that. Not even now, but back then, I just I never got into that deal. Well, plus you were probably getting all you needed from the alcohol, right? Sure. But I just don't know, I don't know how that stuff works on people, but apparently it does very well. Well, if they accidentally become addicts, which happens all the time with OxyContin and some of those other pretty powerful drugs, you know, that's one thing. Right. But uh, on your own volition, not wanting to do it, it's just a personal choice after a while, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. That was just never my thing. Was it 2004 was your last season? 2005. 2005. I played a month and then I went and had surgery and I rehabbed the whole year, came back for the playoffs. And then I tried to come back in 2006 and I quit in the middle of the spring training because I couldn't take the pain anymore. Mm. That must've been really rough at the time for you. It was rough, but it was also satisfying. Like I, I just couldn't do it anymore. Like the amount of pain that I had been through in the last three and a half years. I mean, it's hard to explain to people, but yeah, <laughs> people say that, you know, there's a difference between injured and hurt. Yeah. I was in need of major surgery and I played three and a half years and it, it hurt every single bit as much as it sounds. Uh, I would actually literally look at the baseball in my hand when I would get it and I'd go, Oh God, I got to throw this. Mm. Uh, it, it was relentless pain. Um, but I just felt like I was, I was 
better than anything else that they could put up there. Yeah, and, and the old adage of playing through the pain. Yeah, this was ridiculous, though. Before my first back operation, uh, Jeff, I knew that I needed surgery, but I put it off and put it off and yeah. put it off until finally the pain was so overbearing. And the surgeon said, look, you know, you're just damaging that nerve. The fact that it's painful means that you got a problem that's got to be taken care of. If it's not going to get better, that also means that you're, in, you're injuring yourself worse. Right. Did you find that all the additional work that you were doing while you were hurt exacerbated the situation? Yeah, I think it was as bad as it could get anyway, Uh huh. but I didn't care. And that goes back to the thing, again, I told you about earlier is I, I don't quit. And I said, okay, I can handle this because I can still do things that other people can't. And just that mentality and, and Howard, it goes kind of like when you're talking about that surgery in your back, I waited till 2014 to have it replaced. Mm. I should have never waited that long. I should have done it immediately when I retired. And I spent, what's that, four, that's eight years, nine years of just the same kind of pain, except I wasn't throwing it, but couldn't sleep, couldn't do anything. And I, I don't know why I did that. Well, that's a long time, man. It was. It was a long time. Yeah. So what role did the booze play in that period of time, from the time you retired until you finally had the, the surgery? I think it played a big part of easing the pain. You know, the pain is not as much as when you're numb, put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just part of the way things were. But, I mean, my body itself was deteriorating. I became very, I would say very thin, but kind of fat thin i don't know it just it was yeah. not pretty my i didn't have anything in my face or my shoulders or my chest and it just the pain the alcohol and my i guess it would call it uh, depression yeah just it just took a toll on me and just you know and, and being an alcoholic which i admitted to in 2010 it's just it was a straight you know tsunami on me yeah yeah, that must have been uh, that must have been really a tough, tough time, especially when you're getting drunk to kill pain yeah. versus to enjoy yourself. You're right. I think because I was so irritated because of my shoulder, it was very hard for me to enjoy myself. I think I became a very I wouldn't say I was bitter, but I was on edge a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you couple a bad home life with a bad shoulder, being an alcoholic, guilt, shame. I mean... I'm no different than any other alcoholic. We all, somehow, some way, we all have the same kind of story. Yeah. And alcohol is the common thread of how do I, how do I change the way I feel? And that was the deal. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So all that led up to 2010 Yeah. when your daughters... My two daughters asked me to go to rehab. Okay. How old were they when they did that? Let's see, 2010 or 21, so it's 11 years. So they were 10, 10 and 8. Wow. Yeah. Looking back on that, to have a 10 and 8-year-old have to tell their dad, you need to go to rehab, 
That's that's got to be a a really tough thing to consider. <laughs> well, yeah, looking back on it now, yeah, you know, and that's that's the guilt and shame that we try to fi- figure out here. But at the time, I was just like, all right, whatever, man, I'll go. You know, I'm not thinking that I'm putting a ten and eight year old in a really tough position who just got thrown out of his house. They don't know what's going on with their daddy, and, and being in the disease. You don't know that stuff, and you don't think like that. We destroy everybody that loves us, and we just are in our own world and, like, whatever. We're just, I'll do what you need me to do to get you off my back. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Was that first rehab you went into just to solve the problem temporarily so that you could go back to doing what you were doing when things settled down? You know, I don't think that that was my thought. I knew that I would never drink again. I did it to appease my daughters. Yeah. But... I had a great time. I learned a lot. I fell mm-hmm. in love with all the people that were in that. You know, you, you become so close and intimate with the people. I enjoyed every minute of that, but there was no thought after I was done. You know, I went like a week or two without drinking again, but I knew I was going to drink again and everything was kind of okay with my kids. And then, and as you know, yeah. once you start with your program again, of you know, one glass of wine with dinner. Uh, then tomorrow's two, and then, then by the next night, you got a, a gallon of vodka in your kitchen, and then one in yeah. your garage. That, that's just how it goes. So did you start off rehab with the idea of, I'm going into rehab so I never, ever have to drink again? No. I'm going into rehab to get my daughters, to, to do something that my daughters asked me to do. Because a lot of the guilt of my infidelity and being kicked out of the house that was some way of, I don't know, some penance or whatever for me to, if I could do that and they would be happy with me or something, I would imagine is the reason I went. But I didn't fight it. I really didn't. Well, you and I both know plenty of guys in the program who have gone into rehab or have gone into AA for basically a lot of the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. but uh, let's just say non-sustainable reasons. You know, how how long can the thought of hurting your little girls last when you really want to drink, you know? Right. Uh, But, you know, but if my mind is set on that, I'm going to drink again. I don't think like that. Even the second, second rehab that I went to, I really thought that it would help me and that I could, I could get a little bit better, but I know that there was something in the back of my mind Mm. that I was going to drink again. I mean, it's just, you know, Howard, it's insanity. It's the definition of it. Yeah, it is. And it's not till I got that, you know, I guess that spiritual, moment which i can't even explain is when all that went away so you went to the first rehab you felt all warm and fuzzy there you go to a second rehab yeah you know a lot of rehabs of course they their end game is let's get the guy well enough so that he can get out of here and go to a 12-step program right to what degree did aa play a part early on i think it played a huge part i think the relationships that i built in there with people um I don't see how you cannot, if you're somewhat of a a good person, when you're in AA meetings and you listen to people speak from their heart, I don't think Mm -hmm. there's any way that you cannot take something out of that. Um, And to hear the stories, to read the big book and to sit there and go, wow, this is the same stuff I've been through. This is the same way I feel. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to take something from that. Now, that being said, I can take some something from it, but what do I do with it? And at the particular time, I just wasn't ready. I, I love going to AA meetings, but yeah, it was never, a, it, there was an end in that for me as far as yeah. uh, I'll figure this out on my own. Hmm. So how did you approach your program early on? 
uh, something that needed to be worked with action or just something you had to get through? No, I, I enjoyed, I liked the action part of it with my sponsor. Um, uh-huh. I didn't mind doing it. I thought it was strange at first that I had homework, uh, <laughs> but I get it now. Yeah. But I was all in uh, as yeah. far as doing it all, but but I have nine desire chips. So in the middle of middle of being all in, I wasn't. You know what I mean? I, I was still field testing that I could do that I could figure this out on my own. I, so obviously I wasn't all in. Yeah. I, my famous line to my sponsor is, "I got this," and he was <laughs> he still laughs. And he, I, I said, "No," nah. and I said, "I ain't got you know what else? I ain't got nothing." Uh, and I've, I've known that now. Yeah. What you had was alcoholism. Yes, exactly. That's what you got. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. That's what you got. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember those years because I saw you stand. I saw you stand up to get some of those uh, desired chips, and you know, I think everybody in that room, there was such a warmth for you, and certainly like any guy who's really struggling, we 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 all put our hearts together and kind of surround the man to help him through that. How did you feel with regard to how others were viewing you while you were slipping? Because a lot of times there's all that shame that yep. goes on and everything else. How did that all pan out for you? You know, Howard, I think this is a very big question here that I think is very important that I tell guys that I work with now. When you first go out, you get your first desire chip. There's the hunky dory. Oh, God, he came in. That's so awesome. That's great. And then once you go back out, then maybe you get, okay, I feel guilt, guilt, guilt. And then when you start stretching these things out till nine of them, probably to my eighth one, the amount of, oh my God, I got to go face these guys again. I can't believe this. They're going to be so disappointed in me. Uh, uh, they're going to say, oh, I knew it. See, I took a bet on that guy. You know, I knew he could work out. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And there's a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And I can't believe it. And what you forget is... And what I learned is they couldn't be more happier that you came back in because one, you came back in and you're not dead. Yeah. Two, they understand how hard it is. And it's really, really a special deal when guys continue to fight to get sober. And I don't think you realize that right off the get-go because you're so disappointed in yourself. Yeah. Uh, And Howard, you had mentioned that when I come back in, you know, I look terrible. And I, you know, I, I make jokes in a, you know, in meetings sometimes I said, I don't go out drinking wine coolers, man. If I'm going out, I'm going out hard. I said, yeah. but the point is once you have one drink, like guys like me, I'm like, okay, I've already relapsed. Okay, let's go then. And then it's a, you know, it's a race to when I can get back into the program if I get back. And it's such a weird deal and it's hard to explain, but people like us and people in the program understand it's not willpower, man. And once this thing takes over, man, it's about another brother picking you up and saying, come on, man, we're going to another meeting. Yeah. And I, and I thank my sponsor and my friends and 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 you and others that have stuck by me. And they're like, Hey man, we don't shoot our, you know, our wounded because you keep wanting us back. And I think it's an important message that I I have seen loud and clear. I mean, Howard, I I got cameras in my house, in my bathroom here and down the road. I mean, they would come to my house. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would tell the guy who works for me, I said, get him out of here. I don't want to see him. Was that about shame or yeah. what were the feelings behind that? It was. It was shame. Like, I, I, I didn't yeah. want to hear it. But dang, man, they came every single time I went out, man. And I will never, ever forget that. And I will always do the same to others. And just, 
that's how we do things and we just give back to what we've been given and it's just it's amazing amazing how men could actually do that for another man yeah it is amazing it really is when we can get to the point where we say we love each other, I think we're considerably down the road. To me, that makes a, a lot of sense. Hey, and it's real. It is. It is real. And and I, I feel that way all the time and certainly have, have felt that way about you and other men. You know, the third thing, you mentioned two things that you're thinking, but the third thing is that the men are glad you're back because they're glad it's you and not them. Mm. And that's not meant in a mean way. It's just that, okay, Jeff has gone out and shown us yet once again just how bad this deal has gotten. 100%. Because guys like you, you know, you, you, you said guys like me, and I thought, yeah, a lot of guys like you don't make it back. No. And some do. And the ones who make it back are because they get involved at least enough to allow other people to care about them, whether they know it or not, right? Right. And what, what I've noticed in, in these interviews have been that sometimes people are so enabled while they're still drinking that there are plenty of people around to convince them what their disease wants to be convinced of. And that is that it's no problem. Right. I'm okay. And yet the flip side of that is these guys who are coming as a posse to your house, ready to drag you out to an AA meeting. It sounds very old school in a lot of ways, you know? It 100% it is. But that's what works. I mean, the, when Bill, they wrote the big book 80 years ago, and to this day, those things still work. Uh, it's about fellowship. It's about caring for others. It's about getting out of yourself. So when you're talking about people look at me and go, thank God I'm not him, but I'm glad he's back. That's the same way I look when I still go and somebody comes in at 15, 25 years and just came back in. I go, whew. I mean, that shows you that it's it's never it's always out there waiting on you. And, you know, you just got to be spiritually fit doing what you're supposed to be do. Otherwise, that could be me. Um, that's what you're kind of telling me what people looked at me about. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll be I'll be frank. My my fear is if I go out again, I won't make it back. Sure. I'm I'm relatively certain I won't make it back and not because of the drugs or the alcohol that might take effect and take my life over once again. Not because of the shame of it, let's say, but this is the thing I've worked on more in my life than anything else, and I failed at mm -hmm. it. That's how the feeling. That's how I. That's how I imagine sure. the feeling would be. You know. Sure. So, I believe what you're saying wholeheartedly, Howard. I really believe this. I think I'm more of an alcoholic now, with four and a half years, than I was before, because I know what I would do if I went out. I wouldn't make I would be dead. There's not even a question. It, uh, there is no grandeur of illusion that, oh, I can have a couple glasses of wine and okay, uh, there's none of that. I know what will happen. Yeah. I, I look at you and your in your sobriety and your program, you're like on a pedestal to me. And I can imagine you want to talk about like if something happened and you did, I mean, it would be that next morning, if you got to the next morning of some sort of sent out, would be terrible. It'd be and let me tell you something, the last thing you and I need is guilt and shame right. in our life. Because the disease supports those two feelings. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. Very strongly. And it'll it'll take any little crevice in the veneer to get us into a state of uh, feeling shame or guilt or, or whatever else. Sure. And I, I really thank you for what you just said about me. But I, I don't ever want to be on a pedestal with anybody. I, I, I And I know you're, you're saying that uh, euphemistically. But, but, but Yeah, I understand. My concern is whenever I'm doing what I'm doing, I have to ask myself, am I doing this because it's driven by what my heart 
heart wants me to do, or is it driven by something else that would more resemble what my alcoholism would want me to do? Because it knows if it eases me down that road, you know, being self-serving and selfish, that it'll it'll get me closer to the edge. So I have to remind myself of that. Well, you know what, the heart, I look at it this way. It gives you accountability. Yeah, good point. And, and that's what I, I feel like I'm accountable to you. I feel like I'm accountable to others. To me, I'm accountable to the whole freaking city after I've done my speech. Yeah. I don't want to let anybody down. And I know it can yeah. happen, but if I got a little bit in the back of my mind of accountability, then that helps. Yeah. As you were mentioning earlier about nine desire chips and going out and going out and going out, people talk about the head full of AA and the belly full of beer. Each time that you went out, how were you feeling right before you took that drink? What did you have to convince yourself of to be able to take it without hesitation? Um, I don't think anything. I don't think I had any. I think I'm one of those people that every time I went out, I knew I was going to. I wasn't someplace ever and said, shoot, just give me one of them. It was never that. I knew I was drinking that particular day. The last time I drank, I went to Boston for the playoffs, and I hadn't been back to Boston in a long time. I knew I was drinking. Mm. As soon as I got on the plane, I started drinking, and four days later, I'm, I'm out of my mind, and I'm my last time I ever drank. But every single time that I did, I knew I was going to drink. So, that I mean, that just tells you the whole story. It was uh, I was never there. Yeah. I, was, I just was never there until the last time. What do you think finally flipped the switch for you? The switch to complete willingness? God. Uh-huh. Power to straight God to me. You know, I had another another intervention with my family, which is probably my third or fourth one. Yeah. And I woke up one morning. I'd already got it kicked out of going to the game because I didn't I missed something I was supposed to be on the field for. It's just the straight God thing for me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of make a joke, you know, a cat has nine lives. God was like, Okay, you've already had your nine lives. That's it. And it's just a straight God thing. I have no other way to explain it than that. Yeah. I mean, I've had all the interventions. I've had I've had rehab. I've had AA. I've had everything. And I just feel like God came to me somehow and said, okay, man, this is it. And you know what? To be honest, it was a pretty easy transition. Yeah. Now, I've had moments. And then some things that have happened during those moments have been God-like, God-ish, however you want to say it. And they came through my wife's mouth. Uh-huh. But it's just a straight God thing for me. It really is. That's such a great thing to hear, especially at the end of the kind of story that you've got, that you would have that recognition of God working in your life enough to come back and let that intervention be successful with you. That whole thing about God working through other people, it's clear to me that some of the men who were in your corner helping you out, that was a God deal for them, too. And just being able to, to be kind of like his hands leading you where you needed to go through other people. I mean, yeah. I remember how everybody was so concerned, but we never we never gave up on you, man. It was, never. It was it, we, we, we just didn't. And not because of anything else outside of the fact that you're an other alcoholic who is in desperate need of a spiritual awakening. Right. And it sounds like that happened for you. So once you came in, did you, for the last time, did you get a sponsor or did you use the guy that you were sponsoring all along? I had, I've had the same one I've had. Yeah. Um, He's been incredibly patient with you, hasn't he? 
<laughs> that would be an understatement. Did he ever want to fire you? I mean, did you ever get that sent? No, I don't. I mean, you'd have to ask him that. We're a program of, of honesty now. <laughs> but you know what? He was there through every single thing, every single time he was when I was ready to go back to the thing, he came to my house, picked me up and took me. Wow. Just to, all the guys. He can't explain it to anybody else except explain it to us. You want to talk about, we talk about spiritual talking through him and him never giving up on me and just the whole group. And and I've said this a thousand times and I'll say it again. I've been on a lot of teams, but I've never been on a team like AA. Hmm. You can have teammates pull in different directions when you're playing baseball. Nobody's pulling in a different direction than this one. Every single person, no matter who you are, wants you to be sober. When I say, when I tell people I love them and I do it a lot, and for a lot of men, especially and mostly in, in our program, mm -hmm. I mean every every bit of that love because it's it's just something special that just warms your heart. And, um, and the work that I do with other people to watch them grow, I can only imagine what my sponsor and those men or you watch me finally sit here after four and a half years kind of going, He's kind of where we need him to be probably about 11 years ago, but, but this is my journey. You are where you are, and everything led to where you're sitting in that chair right now, you know? Yeah, true. I often think to myself, geez, I wish I'd gotten sober earlier. There were so many things that I missed. Most of the trouble I got into was making bad decisions under the influence. And the problem with the bad decisions is they, they have a tendency to affect big chunks of your life in the future. <laughs> You know? Yeah. yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> think about, yeah, and I think about all of the drug-addled and alcohol-addled decisions that I made along the way, like, uh, oh, I don't want to go to graduate school. I want to be able to get out so that I can party, so I can get a job, so I can party, so I can afford yeah. marijuana and the booze I want. And years later, I look back and say, yeah, you know, what was I thinking? Well, the problem is I wasn't. Yeah. Or that I was a lot, I was letting the alcohol think for me, right? Right. That, that sort of thing. Yeah, but you know what? You're right, though, Howard. This is my journey. The, all these things would have never, I would have never led to my wife. And this is what I tell people, too. The person that I am today, mm -hmm. if all it takes for me to be that person is to not drink, then it's worth it. Yeah. And I, I like who I am today. I like, I like how I can help people with my problems to show them. I do the same thing in baseball when I teach younger kids. I tell them all the things I did wrong and how I get out of them. It's no different than what I do in AA. I'm given experience, strength, and hope. Mm -hmm. I give you my experience, what I did, and I give you hope that things can that can turn out well. And I love that. And I love my journey. And I love, I, you know, I, when I first came into the program, you hear those words, oh, I'm a grateful alcoholic. And those are the most stupidest things I ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. <laughs> I'm sweating, I'm shaking, and all that. And now I get it. And now I am a grateful alcoholic. Yeah. Well, I, you know, what's really cool is I've heard you and you just made reference to it. I've heard you over the years, the gratitude that you have for your wife mm -hmm. and how much that means to you and how it enriches your life along with sobriety. My guess is that's something that never would have happened without you getting sober. No. And I mean, I truly believe God put her in my life. Like I know that for a fact. Yeah. And you know, we were kind of two train wrecks running together at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then I was the bigger train. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, Howard, I would sit there throwing up in my sink in the morning and asking her, sweetheart, will you please leave me? I, I said, I will take care of you and your kids for the rest of your life. I said, you do not need this in your life. And she never, ever quit on me. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll never forget that. And I never stopped 
praising the Lord for, for putting her in my life. And God did it for me. He put it, put her there and she stood, stood by me. And, um, it's been a, it really has been a beautiful journey as crazy as it was. It was a beautiful journey that I, I just, I'd never take for granted. Yeah, that's one of the things I say all the time is I never want to take my sobriety for granted. No. I never want to take my wife for granted because we were married for about a year and a half before I got sober and things were going downhill really fast. And But she, being the daughter of a, a, an alcoholic who died an alcoholic, she said, well, if you want to drink and use drugs, you can. And I thought, hot dog, I can finally do what I want to do. <laughs> she said, yeah, but I won't be here. The only the only part of that that you may not like is I won't be here, and she meant it. Yeah. And uh, o- over the years, I mean, we've been married over thirty five years. We've had our ups and downs, like like everybody else. But the women in our lives can make such a huge difference. And it sounds like that your wife has done that for you, and mine that has done that for me. And like you said, Howard, it, you know, I, I spend generally I spend twenty four hours a day with her. Uh-huh. Um, it makes me feel safe. And apparently I make her feel safe and safe is not a, like I'm scared, but it just makes me feel at ease because I was so lost. Yeah. And she, she kept me afloat and I don't know, man, it's just, it's just such a beautiful thing. And, you know, and I, you know, I still got guilt for how, what the, you know, five strong years of the things that I've said to her and, Mm -hmm. But man, she continues to be the rock in my life, and it's all because of God. And um, hey, man, you can call me all the names and you want to call me as a man and all that kind right. of stuff. But I'm a, I'm a happy man and very grateful to have what I have. Well, it sounds to me like being able to have an eighth and ninth step were really, really important to your sobriety and to your marriage. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a fair statement? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, and well, that for sure, and ten. Yeah, and ten. <laughs> because yeah, because I get to I get to clean it up a little bit. But yeah, I, I uh, it, it really has, and I just I don't know, man, Howard. I, I this whole journey, um, it really is something. You know, people ask me all the time if you if you could go back and not be sober and all that, could you would you do it? And I sit there and go, would I wanted to be able to drink and all that? Sure, but I wouldn't. I love that I've been through this and I've loved the, the relationships I've made. I've loved the people I've met. I've loved the fact that you can call another man and tell him you love mm. him and really mean yeah. it, even though you're not even from the same side of the track or whatever. Right. I just, I just think what I've, what I've been through makes me appreciate life a lot more. There's that grateful alcoholic that you were wondering about all those years ago. It is. I found that guy. I found that guy. <laughs> yeah. That guy. And he's sitting right in your seat there. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And I also found out, the two hour that woman that says at the end of the meeting when you say keep coming back it works if you work right. it which I also thought was the stupidest thing I ever heard <laughs> and now I get it I came back nine times <laughs> so I get it you know the, the if you work it part is the part that was missing for you probably all along wasn't it yeah you're right 100% yep. so you've been doing a lot of service work in your sobriety mm-hmm. you've been there for other men I, I, I right. wanted to ask you about your service work during your years of sobriety well here's what I do I think I'm a very good counselor. Um, mm. You know, we talk about sponsors and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But what I do is I talk to a lot of people, a lot of guys that have gone through, just probably like you too, that have gone through similar similar situations that I've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of alcoholics, men, have a lot of problems with their marriage yeah. and infidelity and how to deal with that and their kids and how we go about as alcoholics 
and try and make a living amend, understanding that there's really nothing you can do about the situation than what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And I love talking to guys and I love giving them, Howard, I'm, I'm more of a guy. I, I'm not good at quoting the book. I'm not good at phrases and all that. Kind of, I try and speak as normal as I can at how the way that I, my program for me works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try and use that to talk about different situations. So if they say something, I'm like, yeah, it's like I was talking about with baseball. Mm-hmm. I've been there. I, I understand those feelings and I, and I get it, but here's what we need to do to get back to some sort of normalcy. Right. Here's what you need. You hope your wife goes to Allen on. Here's what you got to do about yourself. You got to call me nonstop every, every night. I want to hear from you and all those kinds of things. And I really enjoy doing that. Um, but my biggest thing that really gets me is the kids. I really, uh, I did a meeting or I led a meeting and I, I was sitting there and there was a wall of 15 to 17 year old kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally talking about acceptance as, as I'm talking, all I can do is think about those kids and what that must be like to be some sort of addiction at that age and how terrifying that must be. Yeah. Um, so I try and put myself in the situation where I ask if there's a kid that needs to be talked to or anything like that, just someone to talk to. Yeah. Um, because it's gotta be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's a, it's a terrifying thought for a kid that old, that age to go, Oh, so I'm not going to drug or drink for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Like where, where do you go from there at that age? Yeah. I mean, and we know people in the program that got sober at 1921. Um, and those women and men that, that have those are such a big impact. Yeah. I love speaking. I love leading because I get so many different questions. And, you know, even what I did for, because if people know what I did for a living, they can ask me certain things. It makes them feel comfortable when, because I'm honest about everything. Right. You know, and, and I, I, I don't care that I was Jeff, the baseball player. I'm Jeff who happened to play baseball and I'm an alcoholic Yeah. or I'm an alcoholic that happened to play baseball. And if it makes them feel anything better about them, then I'm doing something to help somebody. And if I could just help one or somebody, you know, cause I mean, Howard, I've been to meetings and <laughs> kids would come up to me and go, you're Jeff. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm doing the same thing you're doing. I'm trying to stay sober, man. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the concerns early on with regard to anonymity always was that a a big-time celebrity or someone who's well-known in the public light, maybe they're a politician, maybe they're an actress or a rock star or baseball player or whatever else, one of the concerns about anonymity in that regard is that if people know who you are and they put you up on a pedestal, you're this great whatever you are great at, and you're also sober, but because of AA, then if something happens to you, the fact that that happened to a guy who was su- such a great whatever, how could AA possibly work? And so how do you reconcile that in your own mind when it comes to people looking at you one way because of the brilliant career that you had, and then on the other side, the man who's working his, his ass off to make sure he stays sober and has a good connection with God? Well, I think the biggest thing is what I said earlier is, I said it the wrong way first, the right way secondly, is I'm an alcoholic who happens to play baseball. If I was a movie star, I'm an alcoholic who happens to do movies. Right. And I am a human being like everybody yeah. else. If you cut if you cut me and you together, we're both going to bleed the same color. And, you know, my responsibility is to God. And 
my accountability is to God, my family and all those kind of things, but I'm no more human than you are. And I think if you show your vulnerability, I think people generally accept that. Yeah. And and I think when we can get as a group or as a, as a society that, hey, man, this is not a this is not a disease. Like I said, when I was a young kid of the guy on the side of the road. Right. Yeah, that's him, too. But there ain't no difference between him and me, except I have money. And I'm, you know what I mean? But we're all, we're both alcoholics. Right. And that's the beauty of the program. And that's, hey man, we're all fighting for the same thing. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's there's a, a, a distinction to be made. Whenever I'm sitting in an AA meeting and they're talking about an active alcoholic and then they say, he's one of us, I think, no, he's not one of us. One of us is sitting in this room. <laughs> but he is the suffering. He is where we go if we don't continue to do the things that we do, right? That's right. That's that's true. You know, and, and then I look at it like, well, he might not have the ability to be where we true. are or, the, or the, the, to be able to get there. I mean, you know, and I, I said something before and I was like, you give some money to some guy on the side of the road. And they're like, are oh, you just going to give him some alcohol? I said, well, yeah, okay, so maybe I give him alcohol so he can live tomorrow to have a chance to get sober. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I just think like that, and you are right. I think it's a, I don't know, I don't know, Howard, you would know, you're way better at this than I am, but I don't know how you would look at it. It's like, it's not an honor to be in recovery. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a blessing, yeah. Like, he, they don't have the blessing that we have right now, but that blessing in one single second can be taken away from us with a bad choice. Well, sure, and that's the that's keeping us in the program with a negative with a negative incentive. To me, knowing that that negative incentive is out there, I try and focus on the enrichment that AA has put into my life. Sure, doing these podcasts has just been. I mean, just being able to sit down and talk to my friends and have a conversation back and forth, knowing that if only one person listens to it and is changed by it, it's it will have all been worthwhile. It's worth it, hundred percent. So I hear your story today, and I know that there are going to be people out there who hear it and are touched by it, right. whether they're a baseball fan or not, whether they're a Jeff fan or not. The connection that we can have just through our words and through our hearts. And I heard you talking through your heart today, brother. And I, I just want to honor you for your, your, your willingness to put yourself out there to make a change in other people's lives so that your life can be enriched, so that you've got the reasons why you want to stay in AA. Right. And I agree with that. And I appreciate that. And, I, and that's all we're trying to do, Howard, when we talk and when we're in meetings and all that is just to reach somebody that needs it, that can hear one thing different. Maybe it comes from somebody else's mouth. That it already came from somebody else somebody else's way they said it makes more sense and who cares as long as they can get it that's great yeah. that's what i enjoy about you is you you always seem like when we talk you always give me some other reason to think about something else hmm. for me and and i mean that in a Thank good you. way <laughs> <laughs> and i and, and i enjoy it you challenge my sobriety as far as uh how i think sometimes and i enjoy that and i appreciate you very much well, i i appreciate you and and i had just one more question and that was this sure. there's this really wicked time warp. The Jeff of today with four and a half, almost five years sober, finds himself standing in front of the Jeff of 2010, who's about ready to go through everything that the Jeff of today mm -hmm. knows about. What would you say to that man at that point that you think might make a difference at that point in his life? 
I would say, I would, I would tell him that surrendering is not losing. Hmm. Hmm. You're actually surrendering to win. Hmm. You can, you can lose some battles, but you can win the war by surrendering. And when you hear grateful alcoholic, I've heard it before, but it's true. Yeah. You will become a grateful alcoholic. Wow. And I'd say, get the heck out of here. Stop. Don't, don't drink right now. Every <laughs> it's not worth it, man. <laughs> no, you might as well be flat out with them, right? Why not? Why yeah, yeah. not? Don't do it anymore, man. <laughs> it's going to be ugly. Yeah, here. it is. It is. Well, Jeff, this has been so enjoyable. I'm, I'm so glad you and I reconnected. We hadn't really seen each other in person in quite a while because of the COVID. I know. But, um, man, you're, you're a really terrific friend, and I love you, and you're a— uh, you're an inspiration, I think, to a lot of people in the program, as others are to you. So it's always a two-way street. But I want to thank you for doing this. Thank you, Howard. I appreciate everything. I love you. You're 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 an inspiration to me, and um, you know anything. I'll do anything for you, and I, and I appreciate it. And hopefully, somebody somebody enjoys what we talk. Yeah, about. Yeah, I think they will. I think they will. We'll we'll never know. But God will know, right? And so if God knows, then I, intuitively yeah. we'll know, right? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my All friend. Right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. All right, brother. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, brother. Take care now. Okay. See you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Jeff B., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to any or all of my other interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Downcast, and every other podcast player app. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 